Well, good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Clark, and I uh, have the privilege of serving as uh, one of your staff here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Great to see you this morning. If this is your first time with us, we'd love to meet you, get to know you. You can see us in the information booth or the community booth to, to meet a real live person. And uh, we'd love to shake your hand and uh, answer any questions you have about Fellowship uh, Fayetteville. On occasion, we, uh, as we survey the headlines and we consider what's going on in the world, we try to take an opportunity to pray for those um, who are in uh, troubled parts of the world. And uh, we have some things going on in Ukraine right now. And uh, we have uh, just gotten correspondence passed on to me from a partner ministry of ours that received this from a local pastor. Um, there is a city named Har- uh, called Kharkov that my wife Pam and I lived in 25 years ago uh, for two months. And so it's interesting to see on the news some of the scenes of the streets that we walked on as the tanks make their way through those cities. Um, this pastor says this. This is just a few days ago. Uh, we've bought generators, fuel, food, etc., so that we can turn a certain part of our church into a place of shelter, so that we can accommodate and feed the believers who are about to face many hardships. Listen to this perspective. God is about to give us a great opportunity to show our Christian faith practically and reach our community with the gospel. As I close this email, I can hear military jets overhead, and we covet your prayers. We are not braver than you, but we're confident that we're right where God would expect us to be. So we want to pray for this church. We want to pray for the believers. We want to pray for those who are in decision-making positions in that part of the world right now. And so as a family of faith, let's pray for our brothers and sisters this morning. Father, thank you for the goodness and grace and the work of your son on our behalf in the cross and the resurrection. And in those truths, we pray in Jesus' name, and we pray on behalf of those hurting in Ukraine right now. God, we pray that you would give a discernment and wisdom to those who are in um, decision-making positions of power. God, we pray that you would be gracious to those in the Christian church in those spaces. God, we pray that uh, the gospel would go forth and be made real to those who do not know Um, the love of Jesus. God, would you do a work? Help us, this side of the ocean, trust the nuances of your sovereignty in things like this. Help us understand what you're doing. God, give us the grace to pray in a way that gives you glory as we trust you with the, the end result of what's going on in Ukraine. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church has... Believers in Jesus, in times when there doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope, we actually have complete, full hope in the works of Christ. And so it's that that we're about to sing about this morning with the new songs. If you would, let's stand together. Let's sing about the hope that we have in Jesus. And I've been healed by Savior. And I fell fire from above And I've been down to the river 
guys can have a seat. About six months ago, um, our staff, uh, we were thinking through our teaching series uh, for 2022, and we're already processing 2023 as well right now. And uh, we noticed on the schedule that we had this opportunity about when Bentonville was going to open their campus. Um, after we finished our Jonah Ruth series and before we start our series in John, we noticed an opportunity um, to occasionally um, step away from a series and drop into a two or three week uh, topical series, if you will, and address a current 
uh, relevant issue that's going on inside the church or inside our culture that we want to help equip you to speak biblically, biblically into. And so the topic of deconstruction uh, came to bear in one of those meetings. And Garland and the college team had addressed that in the college service on Sunday nights, and they had done a series um, just kind of helping people understand what that is, what it isn't. And we thought, you know what, why don't, as a church, we spend three weeks um, considering this idea of reconstructing our faith and take a fresh look at what it means to follow Jesus. And so we know that um, over the last 18 months to two years, a lot of folks inside and outside the church have gone through a process of what you might call deconstructing their faith. Some have walked away from the church. Um, some have walked away from their faith, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, some have been um, pushed away from just power abuse inside the church, um, just gross acts of misogyny. Um, there's been a little bit of conflicting um, information about the church and politics, and what does that mean, and how does it mix? And so people have processed that, um, some with anger, and some of they, as they have deconstructed their faith, it's because of real pain that they've experienced. Others have just used it as an opportunity to continue being skeptical, uh, being uh, skeptical of their faith without any kind of desire to know the truth. It's just kind of a, a facade, or it's in vogue to do that right now, and just doubt with no real desire to understand what you believe. And so we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to just walk through some scriptures and help us understand that. And so um, Garland, help us see, um, you went through this process a little bit when you were in college. Define for us deconstruction for our purposes here, and then tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I'm Garland. So, I mean, deconstruction, it's, it's kind of become a catch-all word at this point in our culture, especially for people my age and down, so mid-30s and down, for anything from having legitimate doubt um, or legitimate uh, struggle with something in the Bible or something in the church to the full other side of the spectrum, which is tearing down everything that, that I believe about Christianity or about religion uh, or whatever. And so it's kind of a catch-all word. It's hard to know what somebody means when they use that term. They say, I'm deconstructing uh, my, uh, my faith. But uh, as, a, as one of the people who helps to, to pastor our college students, it's, it's pervasive. And if you, if you know, uh, probably most of us in this room know somebody who's going through some form of this uh, whether they're just doubting and skeptical or full-on, uh, they're just worried about uh, their faith in general. And so for me, I remember I went to a state school uh, in the South, in the SEC, that's right over there, and uh, so I went to that school for college, and I remember being in biological anthropology class and philosophy classes and geology classes, and then the Bible was put in this category of uh, an ancient religious text or world civilization, and it 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 did a number on me coming out of, you know, I grew up here at Fellowship and went to our student ministry, and I was ill-equipped, unprepared to just wrestle with some of the things that were uh, being taught, some of the things that I was having to face, and it caused for me many, many, and I still, I still have them, uh, many, many nights of just laying in, in bed going, I don't think I can buy any of this. I don't know if I can trust Genesis. I don't know if I can trust the New Testament. I don't know if I can trust any of this, and we recognize that there's, some of you aren't that skeptical, uh, probably, but many of you might have some questions, and, uh, and so I just want you to know, me too. Um, that's part of my story. It still is. It's a safe place for you to get to do that, so uh, what we want to be able to do, though, is not just deconstruct, 
but then to be able to build back, what does it look like to, to follow Jesus? And so that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks uh, here together as a church. Yeah. And so, Michael, we're fortunate as a church, and you may not be aware of this just because you're here this morning, and it's just part of who we are, but we're, we're at least a four-generation church on Sunday mornings, and that's a real gift um, to our church community here in Fayetteville and here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And so, Michael, speak to just the idea that why this is important for every generation. Yeah, Clark, not only do we have multiple generations in the room and in our community groups and in our ministry, but within those generations, all of us are in different places on our faith journey. And so uh, one of the things that I wanted to just share with you this morning is I hope no one will think this series is not for me because this series is actually for all of us. You know, when I was a young adult, like Garland, I had someone challenge me and the challenge they gave me was, do you believe this because it's all you've ever been told or do you believe it because it's true? And so I went through a season where I read widely and I questioned things and I, and I asked the hard questions and I came out the other side of that experience convinced that the biblical worldview is rational. It is defensible and ultimately it is true. And so wherever you are in that journey, we want to come alongside you and engage you. As Garland said, we want this to be a safe place, no matter what generation you're in or what place in your spiritual journey you're in. And so, you know, for some of us, um, I hope over these next few weeks, we'll be called back to some core truths that we can anchor our faith in, and we can stop um, moving away from faith in Christ and move back toward faith and obedience just by being called back to things that we know ultimately are true. Um, for others in here, I hope that over the next few weeks, maybe we will ask ourselves some hard questions, and we'll think about some things maybe we haven't thought of, and we might even realize that some of the things we've taken as an article of faith aren't actually biblical. We've added those on to what the Bible teaches on some of these topics, and, and maybe it would cause us to, to have a healthy reappraisal of the things we're thinking through. And then lastly, I think there's a lot of people in here that you can be the safe space for someone. You can be someone who's not afraid of someone's doubts. You're not afraid of their questions because you're equipped and you're a mature follower of Jesus and you can sit down with somebody and help them recenter on Christ. And so I hope all of us over these next few weeks are gonna walk out those doors um, with, with something we can take out into the community to further the gospel. Yeah, that's, those are good words, Michael. And just so you know, this is not gonna be an all-out um, apologetic series answering all your deepest questions. We're going to address three. And so why these three, guys? We're going to look at the scriptures today. Um, next week, we're going to take a fresh look at the church. And then the last week, we're going to look at discipleship and what following Jesus is and what it isn't. But, so, so why those three topics? Yeah, we start with the Bible. Um, so today, we're going to look at the scripture. Um, we, we build how we understand not only God and theology, but how we view the world from there. And so we're going to look today, what is this thing that we're reading when we read the Bible, and what is it not? And uh, uh, so we're going to tackle that one today. Then, Michael, next week. Yeah, next week, we're going to look at the church. And what I have noticed as I've followed a lot of these deconstruction stories online is a lot of people aren't mad at God or Jesus. They're mad at the church. And a lot of them are mad for good reason. Um, the church, every church, the, the, the broader church and our local churches, none of us are perfect. You know, they, they always say, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, you'll mess it up. And so churches are full of flawed people. And so next week we're gonna look at what's the problem with the church 
and what's the solution? What does the Bible say about the church? In the third week, we're just gonna really get down to the basics. What are we even doing here as Jesus followers? Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus in the 21st century in the American culture? Uh, following Jesus will both challenge people on the right and on the left. Uh, it'll challenge conservatives, it'll challenge traditional people and progressives because following Jesus is a radical claim to a new way to be human that is to bless the world. And so we're gonna kind of get down to brass tacks. Just what does it look like to say, Jesus is my king, and I bend the knee to him, to him as the king? And that'll be our, our third week, and then we'll start the book of John. So, yeah. So I'm gonna pray for us as a family of faith and pray for you, pray for me as we sort through these things together and pray that God gives you opportunities um, with your friends and family um, to, to be equipped uh, to process some of these deeper questions. And so, would you join with me as we pray? Um, Father, uh, on behalf of my church family and for my own heart and for these guys, uh, God, would you um, protect us from things that are untrue? Uh, God, would you help us see clearly the things that are true? God, would you give us the courage, um, give us the faith even, um, to step out and follow you when things can be unclear? For each person in here, God, I pray that you would reveal the idols of their heart, of my heart, the things that we bought into that are Jesus plus and not him alone and help us know the difference. In his name we pray, amen.
God, we can trust in that because you have fulfilled the promises you've made. And so, God, as we continue to learn more about your word, the trustworthiness of that word, God, open our eyes to see you clearly and newly this morning. In your son's name, amen. Yesterday morning, I woke up in Costa Rica on vacation. It was 85 degrees. I came back to snow in my backyard. I'm very disappointed in that. It's going to be 70 this week, so I missed all the snow last week. Uh, I'm Garland. Good to be back uh, with you guys. Have you ever thought, just, just the outrageous claim that it is, maybe you've never thought of this, uh, maybe you grew up in church, never thought of what a radical claim this is, that Christians are saying that the God who made the universe, like the one who created the distant galaxies, billions of light years away, the one who made our DNA to replicate and work, that God has spoken to us in language, like words. I mean, that's, that's a profound claim if you think about it. It's, it's a radical claim. It, it was a profound claim it's a profound claim now. It was a really profound claim in the ancient Roman world. So the Roman religious world was not centered on text. The Greco-Roman culture's religious, they, the gods weren't worshiped through studying a text. In fact, it led a, a first century historian, Larry Hurtado, to, to make this comment about Christians, Jewish, Jews and Christians and their text by saying this. He says, most people today probably presume that sacred books or scriptures are central for any religion. So that's actually not the case. If you look at the longer and wider scope of religions throughout the ages, it is a notion that we have inherited and largely from Christianity. See, we are a people like, of the book. Like we, we stake our claim on building our faith that God has revealed, has revealed himself to us here. I mean, we see this all over the pages of scripture, like the Psalms come out thunderously declaring Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the way of the scoffers, but whose delight is in the Torah, the instruction of the God of Israel, of the Lord, and who day and night meditates on this. And by the time we get to the New Testament, you may think, well, we're, we're kind of done with all that Old Testament. We've got Jesus, but not, it's not the case. We see the apostles in the early church gathering together to to hear the apostles' teaching, and notice where they're gathering in 46. They're meeting in the temple courts. Why? To hear the Hebrew scriptures read to them. And we see Jesus saying very similar things. Jesus doesn't come along and go, you know all that whole book thing, all that Bible thing, we're past that now, I'm here. He actually comes onto the scene and says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, 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 that's not why I've come. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We are such a people of the book, making this radical claim about this document. We are such a people of the book that it, it was actually Christians who by and large are responsible for what we now call a book. It's, it's technically called a codex, taking pages and binding them together like this. It is Christians who were largely responsible for this technology catching on. Before it was scrolls. And Christians said, no, no, we wanna have all of these together in one place. And the codex, the technology of the bound book became really popular. A lot of historians see because it was Christians' insistence on having this text. By the way, this is the oldest uh, codex that we have of all of the scriptures called Codex Sinaiticus. It's really cool. It's like from the 300s. It's really cool, okay? Uh, anyway, so we're gonna go nerdy today. I'm just gonna warn you. So we are people of 
the book. And when we say we're people of the book, that comes with some questions. It might even come with some concerns for some of us in the room. Like, how do we get this thing? And, and is it true? And can we trust it? And what do we do about the translation? Has it been translated a bunch? How do we know this is really what they said? And like, what do we do with the stuff in here that seems, seems different or contradictory? How do we square those things up? Or maybe worse yet, like, what do we do with the stuff in here that just is flat out off-putting to us as modern 21st century people? What do we do with that? Maybe even worse yet, in the name of this book, or using this book as backing, for the last 2,000 years, people have done some atrocious things with this book. The Crusades were built on this book. And we've seen people who were enforcing slavery using this book. We've seen abuses of women using this book. Like, those are some weighty things. And maybe, maybe your issue is not something weighty like that. Maybe you come in here and you're just going, I wanna read it, but I just don't know how. Or I wanna read it and sometimes I open it up and I'm just, I'm just bored. It's dry. I don't know what's going on. We all come in here with a variety of backgrounds, a variety of questions, a variety of concerns about this thing called the Bible, this book. And here's what we're gonna do in our Reconstructing series. We just wanna begin to acknowledge some of that, okay? That's the point of the series. And maybe you're in a different season, as Michael said, in the questions you come in here with. But maybe then begin to build back, maybe brick by brick, what it looks like to approach this text. And we're gonna center on Luke 24 today. We're gonna kind of start there. We're gonna be kind of all over the place. It's a little different series. Here's our outline for where we're gonna go this morning. Just, just four points, and I'm giving you the outline so you can take notes. You can have this for yourself later. You can reteach to others in your discipleship. First, we're gonna see what the Bible is not. What are the wrong expectations to bring when reading this text? Second, what the Bible is. Third, why do we need this thing? And last, how should we read it? So what the Bible isn't, what it is, why do we need it, how should we read it? Now, this is gonna be different. If you're new with us, this is gonna be a different kind of, of sermon, probably a different kind of series. Normally, we walk through books of the Bible. After this series, we're going 21 weeks in John. Get excited, all right? But this three weeks is gonna be a little bit different. Normally, we try to have like anecdotes, and I try to have stories and illustrations or jokes to keep it moving in here. We got none of that, all right? Today, we're going kind of classroom style. Some of you were like, good, you're not that funny anyway. So we're gonna kind of move along. Here's our outline. Here's where we're going. The first thing we gotta do is look at what the Bible is not, Okay, what are the wrong expectations we bring to this? Now, I did not know, I asked most people to tell me something better to call this, and I couldn't think of anything better than a warm, fuzzy hunt, or somebody said it's not warm fuzzies, it's warm and fuzzies, that feeling you get when you kind of feel good in your stomach, when you fall in love, you get the warm fuzzies. A lot of us, when we read the Bible, what we do is we're essentially looking for a verse to make us feel good for the day. We're reading through it to find a verse that makes us feel inspired or that makes us feel valuable. So we open up to Jeremiah. We're not really sure what's going on in Jeremiah. We start reading it. It's dry. It's boring. We don't know what's going on. Then we get to Jeremiah 29. We're like, still don't get it. We get to 29, 11, and we go, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You're laughing because you got it on a poster in your powder room at your house or it's on a mug, right? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Or reading Joshua, we're like, man, this is hard. This is violent. But oh, 
Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house and my kitchen, we will serve the Lord. Put it above the stove, right? And this is what we do. We're looking for a warm, fuzzy hunt, something to make us feel good so we can go about our day. That's not how this book is meant to be read. It's not how it's meant to be digested. It's not meant to give you a a warm, fuzzy for the day to feel good. Uh, The second, I think many of us might have had this experience. I give you mine. Uh, The Bible is not a magic eight ball. Uh, I'll give you my experience. I was, uh, you're gonna hate me for this. I was dating a girl in college and the relationship had begun to sour a little bit. And uh, I, I didn't wanna break up with her because you know we'd been dating for a while and I was, undec- was kind of indecisive about it. And I wasn't sure what to do because I, I, I thought, man, this isn't healthy anymore, but do I like her and it's gonna, she's gonna be hurt. So I did what a lot of Christians do. Some of you have done this. I said, Lord, I need you to guide me here. Should I break up with her or not? Many of you have had this experience. And by the way, in my experience, it opened to uh, one of the judgment passages, and I thought, that can't be right uh, in, the pro- in, the, in the prophets. Then I did it again, and it opened to the Psalms. And I thought, ooh, Psalms are better, but it was one of those Psalms about revenge on your enemies. I was like, that can't be right. Then I literally held just the New Testament in my hand and said, let's try the New Testament. I thought, what am I doing here? So it's not a magic eight ball. But many of us approach the scriptures, I think, that way. The third, I hear people say this frequently, it's a roadmap for life, a rule book for life. Now, the Bible certainly will give us wisdom on how to navigate life as a follower of Jesus, but it makes for a pretty lousy roadmap. Like a lot of the decisions you're gonna have to make in life, the Bible doesn't address. It doesn't give you rules, A to B, on how to make decisions. And so when we approach the Bible as a roadmap, oftentimes we're asking to do something that it wasn't created to do. And lastly, this is maybe the, the, what I see more than anything else. We approach the Bible as a reference book. Here's what I mean by that. We go to the Bible as a grab bag to find verses that defend either our doctrinal position, that's something important to us, or our political ideology, something that's important to us, or a cause that matters to us. So we hunt through the Bible to find verses, rip them out of context that seem to support whatever the position that we hold is, or the doctrinal position is that we're that we're talking about, and we say, see, I've got verses on my side. And by the way, this is what I see a lot with our, our deconstructing friends, maybe some of you in the room, but here's what they're doing. They're, they're grab-bagging for verses in the Bible, ripping them out of context that they find off-putting, and saying, see, look at this verse, this random verse in Leviticus, see, you can't trust the Bible. Okay, well, I, I understand that, but we gotta do a little more work than that. That's not how Leviticus or the Bible is meant to be read. So if this is what I see a lot of us doing, myself included, is what the Bible is not, then what is this thing that we're reading? I'm gonna give you kind of my, my one-sentence summary. We're gonna work through each phrase, phrase by phrase. Here it is. The Bible is one story written by multiple authors over a millennia of time, collected and edited to point to one great hero, Jesus. What is this thing? Well, it's really one story but it's a story that's been written by multiple authors over a millennia of time that's been collected and edited in fashion to point to one great hero whose name is Jesus, the Messiah. That's what the Bible is. Now, where am I getting this idea? This is where we get to Luke 24. So look down at your passage, Luke 24. Here's the context for Luke 24. Jesus has been resurrected, and he meets some of his disciples. They're walking to a city called Emmaus, 
and he sits down with him and has an amazing Bible study. Just go read 24. Like, I wanna be in this Bible study. He sits with them and explains all of the scriptures, and then he makes this statement at the end of this Bible study. They realize it's him, and he says this. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Where? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. The Bible tells one story, one unified story. What is that story? Hear it. It's a rescue story. God created humanity to experience the blessing of his presence and then take that blessing out to the rest of the world. What an honor that would be. What a privilege for humans. And yet, the story of the Bible, humans make it three pages before we ruin it all. Instead of receiving that honor from God, we try to take honor and power into our own hands. And we've brought this infection called sin into the world. And that infection is, by the way, the cause of all the brokenness that we see in your life, in the lives of nation states. It's this infection called sin. It's desire for power. And the story of the Bible is, what's God gonna do about it? It's a rescue story. He selects a family. It seems like a strange answer to this problem. He selects a family. It's the family of Israel and says, through you, we're gonna get this program of blessing the world back on track. But instead, Israel fell victim to the same infection called sin. So we need a rescuer for Israel and then through them, the world. And the Bible's pointing to this one rescue, this one answer, this answer to be found in Jesus. So Jesus says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. When you read the story of scripture, it's ultimately all pointing to me. It's a rescue story that's pointing to me. That's our one story idea. But it's also written by many, many authors, multiple authors, in fact, dozens of authors. When Jesus says about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the first five books of your Bible. The prophets is a section of scripture that the Jews had clumped together. And the Psalms, they called them the writings. This is the third section. When you say the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, this is how a Jew would talk about all the, what we call the Old Testament. It's really just the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus says all of those authors, and by the way, some of them were kings, leaders. Some of them, most of them were a collection of marginalized prophets who were a group of people that try to follow God and speak truth to power in their country. That's, what that's who prophets are. That's who these many authors are. And this spanned a millennia. We're dating Moses before 1000 BC and the closing of the New Testament by around 90 AD. So we're well over 1000 years. And, and just, just to, to make the point for you, I, I think so often we just miss this simple point. When you're reading the Bible, you are reading ancient Jewish prophetic literature, not 21st century American self-help religious stuff, okay? We have to enter into their world. Just to make the point for you, I want you to see this. Uh, this is called 1Q Isaiah or the Great Isaiah Scroll. It was found in 1947 in what we now call the Dead Sea Scroll Caves in Qumran. And uh, just look at it. Uh, this is the oldest manuscript that we have of Isaiah. Probably dates to around a thou, uh, about 100 AD or BC. So this is 1Q Isaiah. And this doesn't look like English, Right? And it's not, a, it's not an NIV, and it's not, in a, it's not even in a codex. And here's why, here's why I just show you this. Um, when I see that, 
it makes me feel humbled. Like I see that and I go, it's gonna take a lot of work to understand what Isaiah is saying. You see, when we read the Bible, we have to become good and humble tourists. Uh, I had my passport in my hand all day yesterday, and so uh, if you've ever traveled abroad, you ever had that experience, especially to a country where they don't speak any English or, and it's not Western. I've had the privilege of visiting some of our missionaries in parts of uh, Asia uh, three different, on three different occasions, and each time we went in, they gave us like culture training, and uh, they wanted us to be sensitive to cultural issues and norms so that we don't offend on accident by just being ourselves. And uh, as we were, I remember one training, we were talking to the missionary who was training us, and they were talking about just this part of Asia, loudness and gesturing can be seen as offensive and off-putting. And the guy looked at me and he goes, he goes, they're gonna have a problem. He said, they're gonna, they're gonna find, he said, they're, a lot of them are gonna find you uh, to be offensive just by being you. And I was like, so wait, what I hear you saying is the continent of Asia will find my personality off-putting and offensive. He was like, basically, yes. Uh, and some of you would totally agree with that. Um, and so, when, when you go, when you have that experience, and I, I, I know several of you have, and many of you have had that experience coming to this country. You can inform us what it's like. When you have that experience, um, you go in and, and you have to be humble. Like you have to go in and recognize, I'm in a different world now. And when you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, you are entering into a different world, a different culture with different values and a different way of seeing things and a different language. It's one story written by multiple authors over a millennia of time collected and edited to point to one great hero, Jesus. You know who the hero isn't? You and me or Fellowship or Moses or David. Pick the hero. Isaiah, no, no. It's pointed to one great hero and that hero is Jesus. Story is pointing there. Now, I bet probably some of you in the room right now, you're like, we're talking Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, this is awesome. I want to investigate. I want to dig deep. Let's go. You want to go nerd out? Let's go get coffee. Let's, let's, let's go talk. You want, to, you want to study more? I can give you resources. Some of you, though, you're seeing a statement like this, and you're going, man, I got some questions about that. What do you mean over 1,000 years? What do you mean collected and edited? So, so maybe you're hearing this, and you're going, that's not as simple as I thought. Maybe deep down you really just assume the Bible fell out of heaven in the message translation for you in English. It did, it did not. Now, here, here's my challenge. If that's you, you're going, man, I got some questions. Let's ask them. Let's reconstruct. Let's do the work. That's why we're doing this. Let's, let's go do the work. Don't, don't run from the Bible just because, man, I don't get that or I'm concerned about that. Let's dig deep as a church because we're people of the book. Now, as followers of Jesus, we're not just affirming that the Bible's one story, multiple authors, multiple, uh, millennia of time, collected and pointed to Jesus. We're not just affirming that. We're also saying something way more radical. We're also saying that all of the process of bringing this text to us, Paul will say is, he uses this word, theopneustos. It's God-winded or God-breathed. That when we read scripture, it's not just a human collection of documents, although humans put it together, but God literally inspires or breathes out the process so that when I read the pages of scripture, I'm reading God's 
very words. This whole process is God-inspired, and that is a radical claim. If you affirm that claim, then here's some implications for you, and I need you to dig deep with me. If you say, yes, okay, fine, I, I, I think that all that process is inspired by God, then it has some implications for you. Let me give you four. Four implications of if this thing really is God-breathed. The first is this. It means it's authoritative. Put it really simply. The Bible's gonna say things that are going to grate against your sensibilities, whether you're left or right politically, old or young, Gen Z, Gen X. The Bible's gonna say some things. Jesus will say some things that were great against your sensibilities and push back against them. And when God speaks and it differs from what you think, who yields? You. If it has authority, I'll let Tim Keller make the point because he makes it better than me. He says, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you. Assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you or differ from you. Does that belief even make sense, he says. There is a God and he's revealed himself. Of course, everything he revealed would be exactly how I think right now. Does that make sense at all? He continues. If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making, and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction with. I'm gonna let the point just land. Some of us have to wrestle. Some of us need to just dig deep on this. By the way, both sides of the aisle. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. There's a lot more I wish God had told us. I got some questions still but this is enough to love him and to know him and to love others and to follow him. We believe that it means that God saw fit to bring us together, to collect, the, the fancy word is to canonize, the exact text he wants us to have. And lastly, that when all the chips are in, when all the cards are counted, what the Bible says about theology, history, science, will be found true. Doesn't mean we understand it perfectly right now, I don't, but when all the chips are in, the Bible will be found to be true in everything that it asserts. These are implications of this being God-breathed. Now, this is a startling claim. We started here. If you haven't thought about this in a while, then you need to. Here's why. We live in a post-modern, post-Christian society. If you are hearing that and you go, uh, no, we don't, you need to get used to it, okay? The genie's not going back in the bottle. We live in a post-modern world. Here's what, let me help you understand what that means if you're like, I don't know what that means. Let me help you understand it. Say it as simply as I can. Throughout all of human history, humans have largely defined truth this way. There is an objective truth that is out there in the wisdom of the elders, or with the gods, or in a text from God. Then there is my subjective experience, my feelings, my story, the stuff in here. This stuff in here is subjective. To be, I should be suspicious of it. I need to align it with that thing out there. The postmodern world is the first world, the Western American and, and European world is the first world where we have flipped that. Now we've said... 
what is out there are institutions and ideologies that should be, I should be suspicious of. They're subjective. They're built on power claims. What is true? What's objectively true is what I experience, what is in here. This is true. If you are, if you are hearing this and going, I don't get this, this might explain your grandkids to you, okay? The mantra of this world then is, what is true for me is true. You know what the great Satan of this worldview is? Anyone from the outside saying, you better conform to my objective truth. It's a power claim. That's the world that we live in, for better or worse, largely for worse. Now, let me just answer this question for you and for me. In this worldview, I hear all the time, we don't even really need a, a we don't need a God to speak from us from on high to be good. We've outgrown that. That's so passe. That's so archaic. To, it, it, in fact, it's evil to have your book tell me how to live. We've outgrown that. We don't need it anymore. My, my response to that, maybe that's some of you in the room, is have we? Have we outgrown it? There's a British playwright from about 150 years ago, and I just, I just like how he says this, even though it's bleak. Hear his, his comment. If one puts aside the existence of God, and by the way, he's speaking to us, as too doubtful, we don't need it anymore, we've outgrown it, and hear him, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances, the ones that I find myself in, that I must conduct myself? Now the answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. Hear him. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. If there is nothing out there to tell us what is true, how do we sort competing truth claims? How do we know which ideology is more favorable? Can I tell you? Whoever yells the loudest, gets the most votes, or has the biggest gun. Without an objective source of truth, that's how you, do, that's how you adjudicate matters. And we may say, well, fine, I, I don't put aside the existence of God, I'm not an atheist, that's not where I'm at, but I don't like the Christian God. Maybe there's some force out there, some distant thing, some being that started the Big Bang and gave us good moral oughts and he wants us to be nice and love each other or maybe she or it or whatever it is out there wants us to be nice and love each other and that's what I'm trying to do. But I don't buy the scriptures. I don't buy God revealing himself. That's ridiculous. May I, may I push back on you just for a moment? It's maybe some of you in the room. When you experience beauty in this world, when you cry out to connect to something bigger than you, when you reach out into the void of the cosmos, desperate for an answer to connect that your life has meaning and value and purpose, can I tell you what your story must hold to? That whatever this being is, this force, this love idea, this deist God out there, whatever it is, when you cry out into the vacuum of space for meaning, you know what you receive? Silence. The story of scripture is that the God of the universe, the creator God, has not been silent. He's made himself knowable. 
understandable. He's made himself knowable in the form of language and grammar that we could hear from him. He's not silent. It's a beautiful anchor to the soul. And I would challenge you in the room if you're saying, I don't like the Bible, I don't need any of this stuff, you need to think deeply about your skepticism. Apply that same skepticism to your doubt as you do to Christianity. Let's see where things shake out. Let's go have coffee. Here's how we close. How should we even read this text? Well, if you had to dig deep today, how do we read it? Now, a lot of research has been done to say that Christians are not reading their Bibles anymore. Uh, some of you are aware of this. Some of you don't care. Um, but a lot of research is showing um, Christians largely aren't reading their Bibles. Their Bibles, if they, if they know where they are, largely go unused. And if they do, it's usually somebody sending them a devo of their thoughts on the Bible, something like that. Now, I thought of some reasons. Why don't we? I asked some people uh, that I'm friends with, and here's the, the common reasons I got. And we're gonna work through them real fast. The first one, we don't have time. Like, can I just acknowledge, you're busy, okay? Probably everybody in this room say, I'm busy, too busy. I get it. I'm busy, you're busy. Let me, let me, let me push on you. All of us give our attention to things that matter to us ultimately. Our ultimate values, they get our attention. The Hogs did beat Kentucky yesterday, didn't they? So, got my attention. Now, we give our attention to things that are valuable to us. And just because this was worded better, I'm gonna say it and let it sit. What you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. This is profound, I think it's true. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. That bodes well for those apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in the world, but not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama or the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. But again, we become what we give our attention to for better or worse. Or as Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your devotion, attention. We're all busy, but we're all making time for the thing that's important to us. Now, some other reasons that I hear, and, and before, before we're looking at that, um, some of you are like, I, I want to do better, I just can't build the habit. Here's two non-Christian books that might help you. Atomic Habits and Deep Work on how to, how to facilitate habits. These three are all the exact same book, different generations. Discipline, boomers. Soul keeping, Xers. Comer, millennials. And guess what, Gen Z, you'll get one right here, here in a few years. They'll write a brand, it's all the same book, buy one and read it. Buy all three and read them, okay? They're all the same book. Here's some other reasons I hear. It's difficult. I, I get in there and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. I get it. Remember, you're checking your passport at the door and you're entering into a foreign land, so get help. Like, go, go find a podcast that will help you or get a Bible dictionary. We're gonna have our panorama class, our how to read the Bible class, our theology classes that we're gonna offer here. Go seek help. Don't just, don't just give up because it's difficult. I'm telling you it's difficult. It takes some work. But let's go, let's do this together. We're Fellowship Bible Church. I hear all the time it's, it can be boring, it can. It can. There are parts that are dry. 
when, when you buy a house, you sign to a long legal document, and it is dry reading, but it is really important. Just because it's dry doesn't mean it's not important. So let's, let's, let's get to work. It, it, I, hear, I hear it doesn't seem relevant to me. You're right. You're entering with your passport to another world 2,000 years ago that's not America. So it's gonna take some effort on your part to dive in so it can teach you what it looks like. But just because it doesn't seem relevant does not, does not mean it doesn't have profound things to say about your life today. So let's get to work. And, and lastly, we don't know how. So this give me six, six, six ways to read it. First is prayerfully. It ain't the sports page. So maybe pray. Lord, help me to make sense of your scripture today. Teach it to me. Unlock it by the power of your spirit. Slowly, read it slowly. Read it again and again and again. Read through whole books of the Bible, then go through a chapter at a time. Read it slowly. Don't be in a hurry. Read it in context, contextually. Sentences are part of paragraphs, which are part of units, which are part of books, which are part of this whole great story. Where does the sentence you're reading fit? You have to read it humbly, checking your passport at the door, letting it guide your expectations, not you guide its expectations. Read it in the context of community. Sharpen each other. It's always more enjoyable read in the context of community. And lastly, read it daily. Here's my challenge. In three weeks, we're gonna start a three-month series on the Gospel of John, and I'm really excited. Here's my challenge to all of us. Whether you're in another Devo right now or not, over the next two weeks, before we start this series in John, I want you to read through the Gospel of John, all of it, this week. And then next week, read it all again. If you do it in one sitting, even better. If you need to break it down into chapters, divide the days out and break it into chapters, start reading. Let's all as a church read through the entire Gospel of John two times before we start teaching the Gospel of John together and see what happens on the other side. Now, here's how we, here's how we end it. Remember that we said the God of the Bible is not silent. He reaches down and makes himself knowable. He makes himself understandable. He speaks to us. And I know we probably still have some questions or some doubts or some, some concerns or some worries. John makes this startling claim in John 1.18. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the, only, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Bring your doubts, bring your worries, bring your skepticism, bring your joy, and bring it to the Son. Because in him, we see the ultimate revelation of God. We see him lifting the face of the broken woman at the well, feeding the crowds in their hunger. We see him restoring the broken. We see him inviting the crowds to come and experience life in him. So let's bring all of that to the sun over these next few weeks. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that when we cry out into the cosmos, you are not silent. But you speak to us. You speak to us in your creation. You speak to us by the conscience that you placed on us. You speak to us by your spirit. You speak to us in scripture. And most notably, you speak to us in the person of your son. And when we behold him, we are beholding the beauty and the glory and the grace of the creator of the universe who made himself knowable for us. So we humbly come before you in these next few weeks 
teach us and we ask it in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond and worship. I run to the Father, fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Oh, 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 oh,
silent. He's not silent. He reveals himself in nature. He reveals himself in what he's made. He's made himself knowable. He's made himself understandable. And he's made himself arrestable, killable. And the resurrection, the defeat of sin and death has been assured. The victory has been spoken. It is finished. So let's take that seriously. Let's trust and obey his word. He's not silent. The best part is he's, he's swept us into the story, the story that he's telling. It points to Jesus. Fellowship Bayville, we hope you'll come back as a part of this series. And if you've got people that have some of these questions or doubts, bring them over these next few weeks. Bring them as we start looking at the Gospel of John. We love you. Have a great week, everybody. If you need prayer, right to your left, to your right and my left is the prayer room. Have a great week.